everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show, we have Bradley Tusk. Bradley is a venture capitalist, political strategist, and a philanthropist. He is also the author of The Fixer, and his newest book is entitled Obvious in Hindsight. Bradley hosts the popular Firewall podcast about the intersection of tech and politics. Previously, Bradley served as campaign manager for Mike Bloomberg's 2009 mayoral race. He was the deputy governor of Illinois. He was communications director for United States Senator Chuck Schumer, and he was Uber's first political advisor. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bradley. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Excited to be on. I want to start today's conversation asking you about a recent post you wrote entitled 50 Reflections at 50. Reflection number 41 is the following. You said, quote, the ability to handle failure is critical. No one truly succeeds at everything they do every time out. If that happens, they're taking far too little risk. The bigger the idea, the bigger the swing, the greater the odds of failure, end quote. Can you start by talking about a failure that shaped the leader or professional you are today? Yeah, I had a stretch of them. Um, So one of the ways that I handled COVID emotionally, which of course I only now realize in retrospect, was I I kept myself as busy as possible. And part of that was I just kept spinning up new businesses, new ideas, new organizations, you know, really probably at an unsustainable rate. And I had kind of three losses in a row that were all pretty substantial. So the first one is there was a SPAC craze a couple of years ago where you raise a bunch of money on the public markets and then you go buy a company with that money. I raised uh, $300 million. I had this idea around building a different type of casino, spent two years going all over the world trying to get a deal done, ultimately failed to, lost millions and millions of dollars that I had invested in the deal and a lot of my time. And for the first time, got to deal with retail investors, which is a uniquely miserable experience. And then the second thing was, I funded and and helped build a tele-religion social media platform called Exalt that was meant to be a place where people can go online and find like-minded people and do Bible study or live stream services or or whatever they want to do. And that also was a spectacular failure. And then I ran Andrew Yank for mayor of New York City. As you mentioned, I've had a long history in New York City politics. I was my Bloomberg's campaign manager. I worked for him at City Hall and felt like Andrew of the choices available was the best bet. I, I still think that but was really trying to sort of achieve too much too soon. You know, yes, he had a big public profile, but really no New York City specific background or experience. And it just wasn't enough to win the election. And those all happened within like a three year span of which in total, I lost eight figures worth of my own money, not investor money. My money had a brutal front page hit piece on me in the New York Times that that just savaged me in every way possible. So it was a really rough period. But I also learned a lot, including I can fail a lot and I'm okay, right? I'm still trying new things. I'm still taking risks. I think I'm a little smarter about some of the risks that I'm taking. And I think I try to be a little more introspective as to why I'm doing something in the first place. For example, the real lesson I learned from the SPAC is like I've been lucky to have made a pretty decent amount of money over the course of my career. But it's always because I was able to create something of value, right? For my investors, for my clients, whatever it is. And in the case of the SPAC, it was just greed, right? It was, 
I'm going to move money from one column to another and skim some off the top, which is how most of finance works, but fortunately not venture capital. And I did the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. And sure, I might have used that money for good causes. That's what I certainly told myself. But I learned a lesson there, which is making money is great, but only if you're creating something of actual value for something. When I was thinking about topics that I wanted to talk to you about and make sure to cover today, I I thought about the last sentence of your bio, and you even indicated a little bit in that answer. You were Uber's first political advisor, and it's something that you're known for. And your venture firm is is now described as the world's first venture capital firm that invests solely in early stage startups in highly regulated industries. Can you give our listeners a little background on how you got started with Uber, what it taught you about the leadership required to navigate the challenges of highly regulated industries? Sure. So I spent, like you said, the first chunk of my career working directly in government and politics. And then in 2010, started my first company, a political consulting firm that runs big campaigns for corporations, politicians, foundations, whoever. And in early 2011, a friend of mine called and said, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? I become Uber's first political advisor that day. I get really lucky when Travis calls me back and says, listen, I can't afford your fee. Would you take equity? I had no idea what equity meant, but thank God I said yes. That was back during the Series A and spent the better part of the next few years running campaigns all over the U.S., to legalize Uber and ride sharing. And the way that we won is that we were able to mobilize ultimately millions of our customers from all over the country to weigh in with their city council members, mayors, state senators, whoever the relevant elected official was who who support we needed and say, I want to be able to do this thing back off. And it worked. I then repeated the process with Clear, which you may know they're a mm-hmm. biometric screening company that, that's used at airports, took equity again to get them into airports. That worked. And then I met my partner, Jordan Knopf. Jordan at the time was running Blackstone's internal venture fund, Mm. and he was looking to start his own fund, but wanted to do something really different. And the question we started debating is, if you truly both understand regulatory risk and can do something about it, how much of a better better investor would that make you? 10%, 20%, 30%. And we didn't know. We just felt like it was meaningful enough to give it a shot. Then embarked on a very long and painful fundraising process. When we talk about failure, I could use, we got there eventually, so I guess it was a success. But we heard no well over 100 times, maybe a lot more than that. But eventually in 2016, launched our first venture fund with $35 million. And we're a lot like every early stage venture fund. So we invested at Seed and Series A. So that's pretty early on in a company's life cycle. And we're looking at the same things as every VC. We're looking at the founder, the size of the market, the underlying idea, the underlying tech. But then we ask two questions that I think are somewhat unique to our fund. The first is, is there a gating regulatory issue or opportunity that if it were solved can really drive growth and valuation? And if so, can we solve it? And when the answer is yes to both, that's really when it makes sense for us to deploy capital. So we invest in FanDuel. Then all the campaigns to legalize fantasy sports betting. We invested in Lemonade, got their insurance licenses everywhere. Invested in Roman, legalized prescription via text, and so on. Gone pretty well. Raised our second fund in 2019, doubled the fund size to 70 million. Our third fund in 2021, doubled the fund size again to 140 million. We're currently investing out of our third fund and raising our fourth. And uh, yeah, we've got a little monopoly in our tiny little niche of venture capital, so it's, it's going okay. You rattled off a lot of impressive companies, some of which I was aware of that you were involved with, some of which I wasn't. You've seen a lot of leaders. Yeah. What do you think makes leaders successful in some of the roles that you've seen them succeed in? 
Yeah, I mean, I, the best leader that I've ever worked for, and I, I feel like I've learned both from really good leaders and really bad leaders, and I think maybe they were equally valuable. The best leader I ever met was Mike, at both at City Hall and on the campaign. And Mike truly put his money where his mouth is. He did what he believed in. He did not let politics get in the way of what he thought mattered. He treated people with respect. He gave them autonomy. He took care of them. He paid them well. He protected them from nonsense. And they did great things for him. Look, Mike was an incredibly successful mayor. But if you make a list of the 100 biggest achievements, I don't know that he thought of all that many of them himself. It's that he put together this incredible team of ultimately thousands of people who normally wouldn't be working in city government, who wanted to work for him and wanted to be part of what he was building and showed up and worked over a 12-year period and got a lot of great things done. And so Mike's the greatest leader I've ever worked with. You know, one guy gets a lot of criticism is, is Travis Kalanick, who was the founder and CEO of Uber. And I never worked full time for Uber, so I didn't see it from every angle. But in terms of Travis's relentlessness and courage and work ethic and willingness to take on tough fights uh, and sales abilities, really, those were all truly remarkable. And I know other people maybe had issues with other facets of his leadership. I didn't really ever encounter those things personally, but I thought he was a tremendous leader. And then let me give you as a third, the anti-leader. So as you mentioned, I spent four years as the deputy governor of Illinois working for a guy named Rod Blagojevich. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he then got sentenced to 14 years in prison for corruption. And Rod was the single worst leader I've ever met. He was a brilliant politician and he believed, and it's almost both insane and highly logical, which is the job of running for office and the job of holding office are two different jobs. Mm. And Rod would literally say, I did my job, meaning I won the election and I'll see you again in a couple of years. And he would months at a clip without coming to the office or getting involved in, in any way. I got the job of deputy governor, which was overseeing the state's operations, budget, legislation, policy, communication. So it's running the state. And I was really young. I was 29. I had no business probably doing that job. But when I got there in the first legislative session, the legislature passes, you know, call it 500 bills a year and 100 nonsense. You know, the official amphibian of Illinois is the frog or whatever. <laughs> but like 100 actually matter, right? They have policy significance, budget significance. And you go through this intricate review of, of all these bills. And then I kept trying to get them to tell me like, okay, so uh, what do you want to sign and what do you want to veto? And so the 400 easy ones, fine. I said, but I need to really talk to you about these hundred. And he kept putting me off and finally said, do you know what you want to do? And I said, sure, I have my views, but nobody voted for me. He goes, well, just do that. And then from there on out, but for better and worse, he was just completely disengaged. So we would decide what bills to sign, what bills to veto, who to pardon, you know, the $60 billion budget, I'd give him a speech a couple of days before the budget address and say, you're going to read this off the teleprompter to the state legislature on Tuesday. And he would very well, by the way, he was a really talented politician, but he was totally disengaged, afraid of accountability or responsibility, incredibly angry. He did have great instincts. He was incredibly charismatic. He could be a lot of fun. But I think I learned from him what not to do quite a bit as well. Hmm. You uh, host a, a podcast that I am a big fan of. And as I mentioned in the introduction, it talks about the intersection of technology and politics. In your view, what are some of the most pressing issues at that intersection today that people aren't concerned about enough or maybe focused on enough? 
Yeah. So I said the one right now that maybe people are a little too concerned about is AI. And not to say that AI ultimately isn't going to be in need of a lot of regulation, but I think that it's still so early that exactly how you would go about regulating is pretty unclear. The EU just put together a legal framework that makes sense to me, kind of basing things on risk assessment. But overall, that's probably getting too much attention. But then I would say the horrors of social media are not getting enough attention, right? Mm. We know what social media does to society. We know what it does to teenage kids. We know what it does to, to suicide rates and mental health problems and everything else. And other countries, and, and the EU especially, have taken steps to really try to regulate this, to protect kids, to protect people from being totally, having their lives destroyed online, to protect them from vicious content that teaches teenage girls how to cut themselves or how to have eating disorders or things like that. And we have really yet to deal with that at all in this country. Individual states have done what they can, but overall, the federal government has been totally absent on this. And so whether it's removing some of the liability protections that encourage companies like Meta to post really toxic content or creating a, a data privacy framework for Americans or strengthening our antitrust laws, Congress and the president, and this is true for both parties now, um, have dropped the ball on this completely. And when you want to talk about an example of having a wildly dysfunctional, ineffective government, we have this thing that to me is effectively the unhappiness machine, right? Social media does, does two things in my view. One, it forces you to immediately compare your life to other people's lives, and those lives are artificially curated. So you immediately feel inadequate about yourself. So it makes you feel terrible about yourself. And then it shows you everything bad happening all over the world, all the time. And then with everyone's idiotic commentary on top of it, so the world feels terrible, no matter actually what's happening, good or bad. And so you feel terrible about yourself and terrible about the world. And it, I think one day we're going to go back and say, like, this thing was worse than cigarettes and guns combined. And yet, you know, we don't do anything about it. And that's because our political system is so broken, so dysfunctional that we are literally killing ourselves. So I want to ask a question about the political dysfunction, because I know you're doing something to try to combat that with mobile yep. voting. But before I get there, I want to ask a personal question. How is your use of technology changed? How has it evolved? You obviously need to stay connected. You're doing many things. How do you stay connected and not get some of the negative ramifications? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Today is, I don't, I don't know when this will post, but we're recording on December 15th. It is my last day on Twitter. We are taking down my account today. I've wanted to take it down kind of since, since the Israeli war started, or at least since Elon made those comments. And my team kind of persuaded me they need a little bit of time to, to transition. But after today, so by the time anyone hears this podcast, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Instagram. I think I might have an account so I could look at what my kids are doing, but I don't even know the login for that. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on TikTok. I don't use it because I really do believe that it just breeds unhappiness and I don't need it. Look, I use technology constantly in that I am, you know, send and receive hundreds of emails a day and dozens of texts. And I'm, you know, endlessly monitoring a million different things because like you said, I've got, I run a venture capital fund. I have a political consulting firm. I have bookstore, I run a foundation, I write books, I host a podcast. I do a lot of different things. And that really does require me to need need and use technology to be on top of all of that. But I would say the biggest change is I just want no part of social media. And I've done everything I can to convince my kids to do the same. I would say that clearly that has not succeeded. But, you know, um, they at least my son at least tells me he doesn't have TikTok on his phone and doesn't use it. I, I'm still not totally sure I believe him. But, you know, I think all of my haranguing is maybe made like 
minor progress. Let's talk about one of those things that you're hoping to, or you are making strides to try to make our government function more effectively, mobile voting. How did that start as an initiative for you? And can you give our listeners a little bit of a background on it? It started during Uber. And like I had mentioned, the way that we beat the taxi industry at the time, we were this tiny little tech startup and taxi was this really muscular industry is that we were able to let people advocate politically through the app and through their phones, and millions of people did. And what I kind of realized pretty quickly is these people don't know who their state senator is. They don't know who their city councilman is. They don't vote in state and local primaries. But we, A, gave them something to care about, which is we gave them a much better service than what they were used to. And B, we made it really easy. Everyone has a phone in their pocket. And started thinking about like, wow, maybe these people aren't too apathetic to ever do anything. They're just not going to like miss taking their kid to school on a Tuesday to vote in a, in a city council primary or state rep primary or whatever it is. What if they could vote on their phone? And so as blockchain and cloud technology both got better, I started funding elections in different states, seven states, 21 jurisdictions, where I picked up the taxpayer costs and either deployed military or people with disabilities voted in real elections on their phones, um, turnout on average doubled, and it went really well. But I got so much grief from the cybersecurity community and, and others who'd only want paper ballots that I realized that the only way to overcome that was to try to build mobile voting technology that was so superior to anything that's out there today, not just in terms of mobile voting, but any way that we vote right now that you just couldn't credibly say this thing doesn't work. So three years and $10 million later, we are just about done. We are going to release it in Q1 of, of 24. It's going to be free and open source. If anyone wants to use it, it's out of my foundation. So it is not only not a, not, not a for-profit business, it is wildly expensive. But I really do believe that, and in the novel that I just wrote, obvious in hindsight that you mentioned, this is sort of the central theme of, of the, no the novel is about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York, LA, and Austin. But the underlying point is every policy output is the result of a political input. So what I have learned is every politician makes every decision solely based on re-election and nothing else. And because of gerrymandering, the only election that usually matters is the primary. Primary turnout in this country is typically 10 to 15%. And it results in one of two things, either the utter dysfunction of Washington or completely one-sided government, whether it's the city of San Francisco or the state of Texas, right, where you are. Either way, that's not good, right? We should want moderation and consensus and compromise. But we can't because the people who vote in primaries are such purists that they're not looking for that. They just want people to sort of be true blue to, you know, the most left-wing or right-wing causes, whatever they are. But if you take guns as an example, and I have no idea what your views are on guns one way or the other, but you're a Republican congressman from Florida, turn out in your primary is 12%. Because the gerrymandering, only the primary matters. You know intellectually that it's nuts that someone can walk into a store and walk out with an AK-47. But you also know that NRA members are half of that 12%. And should you say, hey, we should do something about assault weapons, you will lose your next primary immediately. And therefore, we don't do anything about it. And therefore, we have school shootings constantly, right? So if turnout in that same primary were 36%, just based on Republican polling, you would have to be for it because you'd want, again, all you're looking to do is keep your job. In order to keep your job now, the input shifted. So now all of a sudden, you've got to do something about a problem as opposed to denying and ignoring a problem. And by the way, that's true on the, on the left. I mean, they basically allow our, our you know, it's funny, Republican, I'm independent at this point. I kind of hate both parties. Republicans make our kids literally unsafe in schools because of guns and Democrats make them uneducated because they're terrified to ever defy the teachers unions. They're both incredibly destructive in different ways, hurting the same population of people. 
people. So on either side, you have to give them the right inputs and incentives because they're never going to do the right thing because it's the right thing. They're only going to do it if it's in their political interest to do so. So my hope is is that if we can get mobile voting legalized, and it's going to be a really tough multi-year fight, because if you, ironically, you want to unite the two parties, make it easier to take away power from them, and then they will <laughs> unite against that quickly. So, you know, Republicans, Democrats, lobbyists, unions, trade groups, they're all going to hate this. But my hope is that in working with Gen Z, in fact, to mention school shootings, David Hogg, for example, who is one of the leaders that came out of the Parkland shooting, is one of the people that we're working with, or Aiden Cohen Murphy, who runs Gen Z for Change. And I basically need Gen Z and Gen Alpha, which I guess my kids are in, to just stand up and say, like, this is safe. And the only reason you don't want us to do this is because you don't want us to have power and say, and we demand it. And I think if that happens, primary turnout increases. If that happens, politicians move to the middle. And if that happens, things finally start getting done. You mentioned something in that last answer when you were talking about schools, and I want to talk about one other thing that you're known for and that you're working hard for, and it's about solving hunger um, for kids. Um, that's definitely an audacious goal. When you set out on that mission, how did you decide where to start? Look, I've been interested in hunger issues forever. Since I was a freshman in college, I've been volunteering weekly at soup kitchens. I did it yesterday. But until I started my first company, I never had any money, right? So all I could give was my time. And then I started making money, even, even pre-Uber. So I started writing checks. And the way nonprofits work that I've learned is the bigger the check you write, the more time they want to spend with you because they want you to write even bigger checks. And so I got to know the people at the Food Bank for New York, lovely people. And what I realized pretty quickly is these are people who are, maybe because they're so lovely, there's terrible politics, right? They have no idea how to run campaigns. So legislation that could pass, that would help a lot. Of, I mean, hungry kids, like if you were starting from scratch and you said, what should be the top priorities of government? You would imagine feeding hungry kids has got to be right up there, right? And yet millions and millions of kids all over the country weren't getting food at school and weren't getting food at home. And I, my question was, well, if you had real political sophistication in running these campaigns, and if the same campaigns that my consulting firm runs for Walmart or McDonald's or Comcast, where there's lobbying and PR and polling and advertising, grassroots and all the tactics that you need to pass legislation, if that was not part of the mix, could you win these things? And so I had my team start doing it. Eventually, we created Solving Hunger uh, at a Tusk Philanthropies, and they have their own team there. And I started paying for all these different campaign tactics out of my pocket. And the answer is yes. Turns out that if you have some real political sophistication and resources, you can do something about it. So we've passed 24 bills in 20 states. About 13 million more people now have access to food on a regular basis. Uh, about $6 million so far in my money has unlocked about $2 billion in new government spending on hunger programs. Uh, our 2024 states, and we're trying to now, we're focused on specifically universal school meals so that every kid gets breakfast and lunch, no questions asked. So we're working right now in Illinois, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arkansas, and South Carolina. So far, Nine states have universal school meals, goals to get that to 50. And so we're just going to be working on this, you know, until we get it done. I always am curious to ask my guests, I guess, what would be the quintessential question about advice for your younger self? So you can pick a time before Uber, you can pick a time before politics, you can pick whatever time you want. What advice would you give to your younger self? I think, and a lot of this is covered in, in that you, you mentioned, so when I turned 50 a few months ago and I wrote an essay about turning 50, you know, sort of 50 things that I had learned. Well, I've learned a lot of things the hard way and I tried to be pretty vulnerable in the piece and pretty transparent about both what's worked for me and what hasn't. But I was one of those kids who just never fit in, right? And of course, 
when you're a kid, all you want to do is fit in. So the less you fit in, the harder you try, the harder you try, the more that repels everyone else and the worse it gets. And it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it wasn't until I finally realized, this wasn't until I was probably about 20 years old, like, you know what? You're a misfit. That's fine. Just be yourself and whatever comes of it, comes of it. And amazingly, as soon as I started doing that, everything changed and people <laughs> wanted to be my friend. And, you know, I was able to sort of realize that and pursue that strategy, both personally and in my career. And so I spent all these years sort of so angsty and upset because I felt so left out and and so excluded and, and just like there was something wrong with me, right? And, and the answer is, there's nothing wrong with you. And the best thing you can do is just be who you are, because it's the only way to be happy. And ultimately, it's the only way to succeed. As a final question, before we move to the rapid fire questions, yeah. you recently opened a bookstore, a cafe podcast studio, it's called PNT Knitwear yeah. in Manhattan. What have you learned about yourself as a leader running a small <laughs> business focused on selling books to New Yorkers? Patience and generosity, right? So I look, I, I knew the store was going to be a money loser. It loses even more money than I expected, but I love books. Uh, I've written now three books in total, the two you mentioned, and a third one coming out next year on mobile voting. Uh, created this thing called the Gotham Book Prize, where we give 50 grand each year to the best book set in New York City that, that's published that year. And I always thought it'd be fun to own a bookstore. And then during COVID, New York City really suffered. So we lost about half a million jobs, many of them in retail. And my thinking was, you know, look, rather than waiting till I'm retired one day, which I don't ever think I'm going to do anyway, to open a bookstore, like, why not do it now? Or like, I could afford to lose the money and create some new jobs and try to provide something nice for the community. And so that's what we did. Uh, we opened up PT Knitwear. The reason it has this funny name, which of course doesn't help with SEO or sales at all, <laughs> is my family came to this country in the 1950s from the displaced persons camps in Europe after the war. And when my grandfather got here in 52, you know, he opened up a 300 square foot sweater store with his friend, a guy named Mike Pudlow that he knew from the camps on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And when I signed the lease for my store, uh, I texted my dad and I said, where was that original store? And he told me the the, the address. And I said, that's oh, one block over. And I said, remind me of the name. And he texted P&T Knitwear, but you can't name a bookstore P&T Knitwear. So the minute he told me I couldn't do it, that was going to be the name. And so it's there to honor my family. And we even found a photo of the original store on one of the interior walls of our store is a giant blown up photo of, of the original. And look, I just have learned that if there's something that I think delivers value to my community, value to my city, value to a, an industry that I care about, um, to just be willing to make the other sacrifices that I have to make to do it. So that is money that can't go into my own lifestyle or trusts or other programs I care about. And so it's me basically making the choice to say, this matters enough that I'll make whatever requisite sacrifices I have to make elsewhere to make it work. And so I think sacrifice would, would be the answer to your question. Well, giving back to the community and, and sacrifice is a wonderful spot to shift us to our rapid fire questions that I ask all guests. And question number one is this, if you could describe your leadership style in one word, what would that one word be? Probably direct, blunt, candid. I think you know this from listening to my podcast and reading stuff that I write. I say what I think. And it's controversial and I'm a contrarian and a lot of people who are defending the status quo when politics or tech or whatever else do not like me because I am questioning their wisdom and their authority. But that's the way that I work. And I think what I'm hoping to show my employees is 
if I'm willing to do this and be out there and try to do what I think is right and take heat for it, you can do it too. And the last question is this, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Yeah. So I, obviously I'll, I'll cheat a little bit and tell the listeners that, that you gave me a heads up when we started right before we started recording and told me I was going to be asked this question. So I had a minute to think about it and I picked something, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it, that in my, my son graduated from middle school last year and the principal read a poem by a guy named Dr. Kent M. Keith called The Paradoxical Commandments. In fact, I cite them in the uh, in the essay that you read. And I, I think about these a lot. So it's, people are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable but be honest and frank. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs, but only follow top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you do help them. Help people anyway. And finally, give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. Well, that is, I believe, the first palm to ever close out that answer on our show, but I think it was well worth it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bradley. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the great work that you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, you can go to bradleytust.com, and that has links to everything from the books that I write to our podcast, to the bookstore, to my venture fund, and everything else. So that's that's a pretty easy way to find it. Well, thank you for all the great insight. Thanks to all of our wonderful listeners for joining us if you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice, and we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer. You can find our show on Instagram at Ability Sims, and you can find our organization at Ability.com. That is A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E.com. I want to thank Bradley again for joining us on this episode. And of course, I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast. This podcast is produced by Ability, a leading provider of award-winning leadership development. You can find us at www.ability.com or by searching for Ability Leadership Development. Make sure to also check out our 12-week fully virtual mini MBA, The Invited MBA, a nights and weekends program that features experiential learning, mentorship, case studies, and networking. Find more information at www.invitedmba.com. Finally, be sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you get our next episode. We want to thank you all for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast. 